0: How many of you have had a child say, at some time in your hearing, you just don't understand me? Have you ever heard that? Or you have a child who says, you never let me do anything. Anything? Anything? Or everybody else gets to, then you fill in the blank. Right? Hey, parenting is tough work. Parenting isn't for cowards, as Dr. Dobson used to say. We want to talk today about how to parent your family after God's heart. How to parent your family after God's heart. I hope you'll take your green outline out and follow along with me as, excuse me, the yellow one. Yellow. Yellow. I'm colorblind. Did I ever tell you that? No, not really. Just forgetful. Here's the yellow one. A father passed by his son's bedroom and was astonished to see that the bed was still neatly made. Uh, It was, uh, the, the pillow was still fluffy. And on that fluffy pillow, there was an envelope. And the envelope was addressed to Dad. He went into the room and he picked up the envelope and he opened it, trembling, fearful what it was going to say. It said, Dear Dad, it is with great regret and sorrow that I'm writing you. I had to elope with my new girlfriend because I wanted to avoid a scene with you and Mom. I've been finding real passion with Joan, and she is so nice. I knew you would not approve of her because of all her piercings, tattoos, tight motorcycle clothes, and the fact that she is so much older than I am. It's not just her passion, Dad. She really gets me. Joan says that we're going to be very happy. She owns a trailer in the woods and has a stack of firewood, enough for the whole winter. We share a dream of having many children. Please don't worry, Dad. I'm 15, and I know how to take care of myself. I'm sure we'll be back someday to visit so that you can get to know your grandchildren. Your son, Chad. P.S. Dad, none of the above is true. I'm over at Tommy's house. I just wanted to remind you that there are worse things in life than the report card that's in my desk drawer. I love you. Call when it's safe to come home. Hey folks, parenting is a challenge. It's even a challenge for an apostle like Paul. So as we open our Bibles today, let's think about parenting and how to do that after God's heart. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. By the way, your, your, your children don't want you to be a peer. Did you know that? They don't need you as a peer. Some parents think that In order to be effective parents, they have to become a child, have to become one of the teenagers. Your teenagers don't want you to become a teenager. They need you to be a parent. So let's see what God's Word has to tell us today about this difficult task of parenting. What we're going to find is that Paul pulls three tools out of the parenting box here, the toolbox And by looking at these tools, you and I will learn some things about how we can perhaps be better parents. Paul begins the text in verse 8 where we pick it up. And what he does here, he picks up first a reprimand, a reprimand, a correction for their arrogance. Notice how he does this. Already you have become, you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have become kings, and that without us. How I wish that you really had become kings, so that we might be kings with you. Now Paul had only been gone from Corinth a couple of years, and yet in that short period of time there had been an attitude developed, kind of an adolescent attitude on the part of the Corinthians. They didn't need Paul and the apostles anymore. They were getting along just fine without him. And so Paul addresses this attitude of superiority that had, been de- had developed in the Corinthians. And he does this by using irony, irony to address it. Irony, of course, is when the meaning of what you're saying is exactly the opposite of the words you've used. For example, somebody asks you an obvious question, and you say back to them, well, is the Pope Catholic? I mean, it's obvious what the answer to that question is, right? That's irony. Or after a storm, somebody says, did it rain last night? And you say, no, the ground is dry. That, that's sarcasm, which is a form of irony. If you spill something at the table, you might say, oh, great. Oh, really? Is that great? No, it means just the opposite of what you said. <clears throat> I like the statement of somebody who said, I feel so miserable without you, it's almost like having you here. (laughs) Mm. One of the great users of irony to make us laugh like that, and and, and sarcasm or irony can be funny. It can also be very deadly. But uh, one of the great users of sarcasm in my generation Uh, Actually, before my generation, but I enjoyed him some as he was growing older. His name was Groucho Marx. Do you remember him? Somebody said, is Groucho your real name? He said, no, Groucho's not my real name. I'm breaking it in for a friend. (laughs) Irony. He said, I'll never forget a face, but in your case, I'll have to make an exception. (laughs) He said, I find television very educating. Every time somebody turns on the set, I go into the other room and read a book. Not a bad practice, actually. He said, I've had a perfectly wonderful evening, but this wasn't one of them. He said, I I didn't like the play, but then I saw it under adverse conditions. The curtain was up. (laughs) See? That's that's what you call irony. And Paul is, is drawing upon sarcasm, really, here to reprimand the Corinthians. His language drips with sarcasm. He, he mocks them for how they have come to think and live, as though they didn't need spiritual fathers anymore. <clears throat> now, Paul didn't do this to be mean. He did this in order to get their attention. That was his purpose. He says to them, oh, you're so rich. You're so rich in spiritual wisdom. The kingdom has arrived. You're already reigning as kings. The millennium is here. He said, would to God that were the truth and we would be reigning with you. He says, you think you've arrived and you don't need us anymore. Like teenagers, they had overestimated their maturity. As we used to say back in the Midwest, they got, had gotten too big for their britches, these Corinthians. So Paul is reprimanding them and in this case using sarcasm. The caustic language is intended to correct their prideful thinking by embarrassing them and exposing their exaggerated self-esteem. It calls attention to their arrogance, the way that Paul does this. This is language that is similar to Jesus. And remember, these are words inspired by the Holy Spirit. The Lord Jesus writes to the church at Laodicea and he says to them, since you are like lukewarm water, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. And you don't realize that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. He reprimands. Nobody likes a reprimand. But a reprimand can serve a great purpose, because it can rescue us from future harm. We've all needed reprimands in our lives, and our children, from time to time, need reprimands. I remember telling our children, time after time, be careful of playing in the streets. And I can remember to this day, our youngest son, when he was about three years old, getting on a tricycle, And there he went right out into the street, and a car stopped just about that far from his little head. Yes, I reprimanded him. To be honest with you, I didn't know whether to hug him or kill him after that. (laughs) But I reprimanded him. Parenting is somewhat like coaching. There are times when teams need to be reprimanded for the way they've played a game or not played it. (coughs) Tom Landry used to say, the job of a football coach is to make men do what they don't want to do, in order to achieve what they've always wanted to be. Paul understands this and he therefore reprimands the Corinthians because of their pride. He knew their pride would lead them to spiritual destruction. It would be an opening for Satan to destroy them in their walk with God and so he reprimands them. Sarcasm, let me warn you, can be damaging. If you're going to use it with somebody else, be sure you use it sparingly. It's like that uh, Chinese restaurant I like to go to from time to time that brings you this little tray <coughs> in which there are different levels of hotness in the, the oils. And you can mix your own sauce for the rice. And they tell you, be careful because this is this and this is this and this is the real hot stuff. And you might say to yourself, as I did one time, well, that looks pretty good, actually. I think I'll just try a little bit of that. Put about three spoonfuls on it. It had third degree burns all the way down to my stomach. The next thing I tasted was two days later. You know, and and sarcasm is like that. We have to be very careful with sarcasm. I've seen wives destroyed by husbands' sarcasm. It can be a wicked weapon. Or as in this case, as Paul is using it here, it can be a useful tool to get attention. And so Paul reaches down into the parenting toolbox that God gives to all of us, and he pulls out a reprimand. And there are times that you and I need that as well. Our children need to be reprimanded. They do. Parenting is really tough in the culture in which we live, because children are used to getting their way. King of England came to the United States to visit, and he, he said, the thing that I really like about America, or that impresses me, rather, about America is the way parents obey their children. <laughs> children need to be in the position of obeying parents, and a reprimand is one way to help them learn to do that. Paul then reaches into the toolbox, and he brings out another, second, very important tool for parenting. It's an example An example. Parents, we cannot raise our children without example. And in this case, Paul gives an example of humility, and he does this not only of himself, but the other apostles as well. He says to them, essentially, God hasn't even placed the apostles in the position that you Corinthians claim to have. And he points out to them the contrast of attitudes between the corinthians and the apostles like himself we'll start reading in verse 9 he says for it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession like men condemned to die in the arena we've been made a spectacle to the whole universe to angels as well as to men we're fools for Christ but you you're so wise in Christ (laughs) we're weak Oh, but you're strong. You're honored. We're dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We're in rags. We're brutally treated. We're homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. <clears throat> when we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. Up to this moment, we have become the scum of the earth the refuse of the world. Now Paul's not on a pity party here. He's simply using this language to draw a contrast between the attitude between the apostles and himself and, and the Corinthians on the other hand. The Corinthians saw themselves as special. They were so special. Paul says we, the apostles, were, were spectacles. That's what we are. We're like prisoners who are condemned to death. You're reigning like kings, of course. But we, your teachers, the ones who brought the word of God to you, uh, we're like prisoners who are going to the arena to die. We're stared at with curiosity and with ridicule while you are reigning like kings. He contrasts the apostles and himself with the Corinthians using stinging words again that are really soaked with sarcasm. He says, we're fools. And maybe that was the language that some Corinthians were using of them. I don't know. But he says, compared to you, we're like fools for Christ. But you, oh, you are wise. You know it all. I confess, he says, we're weak, but oh, you've got it all together. You're so strong. We're dishonored, but you have lots of distinguished remarks made about you. You're honored. The example of humility that Paul is pointing out here is genuine. He wants to set the record straight with these Corinthians. And so to do that, he tells them about how he faces himself, physical deprivation. Notice that, verses 11 and 12. He is without, while they have plenty. He points out to them also the social degradation that he faces. In fact, he says, we who are the apostles, we're considered to be the scum of the earth. So Paul points out the example. He says, I'm not telling you to be something we're not. Parents, it is important to reprimand. But correction must be reinforced by your own good example. We can't tell our children that they should do this or that if we ourselves are not tracking along in that same direction. It destroys our children when we do that. Paul reaches again into the toolbox, and this time he pulls out a warning a warning. Of discipline. <clears throat> there are times we need to warn our families of what's ahead if they don't obey and that's what Paul does. You will notice in verses 18 and 19 he says some of you have become arrogant as if I were not coming to you but I will come to you very soon. Paul is <laughs> in essence is saying don't make me come down there He says, we're going to come very soon, if the Lord is willing, and then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. He says, we're going to get to the bottom of this. He's warning them. Now, parents who are after God's heart do not humiliate or abuse or browbeat their children. Instead, they love them, and they love them enough, they love them enough to warn them of discipline. Gently but firmly, to warn them of discipline. And what will happen if they do not obey? Children need this. Children need boundaries. When children are very young, they need to have all rules, basically. Because they can't rationalize, they don't understand, you can't reason with little children, right? But as they grow up, Then you have to begin to reason with them and help them to understand that if you do this, this will be the consequence. Discipline, by the way, is best applied in the context of family. That's why Paul uses so much family language in the text. You notice in verse 14, for example, he says, "I'm not writing this to shame you, but to warn you, as my what, my dear children." Paul is saying here, I'm your spiritual father. I'm warning you as my dear children. Now discipline does happen in other contexts too. It happens at school. It happens at church. It happens in the daycare for little ones. It can happen in the context of the government and authorities that God has put over us. But it's always best to happen in the context of the family first. We can never slip off to others the responsibility that we have to begin the whole process of discipline in the lives of our children. Paul says, I'm the father who begot you with the gospel. Notice he actually says that. In Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Reminds us of what Peter says when he says, For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. This is a reminder that the the gospel is the seed that gives life and brings one into the family of God. It is the gospel. And so that is why you and I need to be sharing the gospel with people. As we're doing that, we're planting seeds. Now your children have only one set of parents. You have many others in their lives who are important. They need to learn to respect. Children need to learn to respect all adults. I hear comments made by our Sunday school teachers from time to time about children who come into the classes. Children need to learn to respect all adults in their lives in appropriate ways. But they only have one set of parents And they need to hear parents giving warnings of discipline. And what that means. And it changes, as I say, as they grow up. Now, in between the verses we've looked at already in the text, Paul lays down for us what I see as principles of discipline in this text. I'd like to go through these rather quickly, and some of them will touch on what we've already said. But I want you to notice how Paul is just giving them principles of discipline. Now, this is God's heart, parents. Grandparents, for the discipline of our families. Number one, warning should precede action. It's not fair to discipline unless you've first established the expectations. And children know what is required of them. And once you've given the expectations, you can begin giving them also a warning about the consequences of what will happen. But warning should precede action. That's only fair. Verse 14, Paul says, I'm not writing this to shame you, but I'm warning you, there's going to be action if you don't follow through, he says. Second principle is this, discipline proceeds from love, not authority. Again in verse 14, my dear children, there are times when I have said, and I, I know none of you ever have, but I said, because I, what? Oh, you have said that. (laughs) And there are times when that may be the best response you can give. But discipline really proceeds out of love, not because I'm in a position that I have my thumb on them. And they need to know that. They need to know that I'm disciplined because I love them. Third, personal example validates correction. If there's no example that follows up the correction, it nullifies what is said. Even worse, even worse, it makes a child bitter when he's corrected for what he sees his parents doing. Personal example validates correction. Number four, reinforcement solidifies values. Notice what Paul does here. He says, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I'm sending to you Timothy, my son, whom I love and who is faithful in the Lord. Why is Paul doing this? So that Timothy can reinforce with the Corinthians what he's trying to say. A wise parent brings into the life of the family others who can reinforce. It's one of the great values of a small group when you meet with children, because they can see other parents, other families, who are saying the same thing that you're saying. It's reinforcement. And it solidifies the values in the hearts of the children as they see this. Number five, trustworthy standards arise out of Christ's truth. Paul goes on to say, He, Timothy, will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus. He's already said, imitate me, but he says, what I'm doing, I have learned from Christ Jesus. It is important that the standards that you bring into your family arise from the Word of God. Now, in our culture, that's tough because our culture wants to dictate the standards that we should use in disciplining and rearing our children. But God says if we're going to be parents after His heart, we have to find the standards that come from His truth and bring those into our home. Number six, reminders, reminders, reminders are a normal part of the disciplinary process. Verse 17. He will remind you. He will remind you. Do you ever get tired of repeating things to your kids? You know, they're, they're exaggerating again. You say, haven't I told you a million times? Uh, who's exaggerating? Yeah. Reminders are so important. Children need to hear over and over again. Not only the what, but the why. That's normal. If your kids <coughs> forget, <coughs> welcome them to the human family. You know why? Because you've forgotten, haven't you? And isn't that why God in His Word often says to us, I remind you, remember... Why do we take communion this morning? To remember what Jesus did for us. Number seven, what is essential? Consistency. Consistency is essential. Notice Paul says, He will remind you of my way of life, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. Do you find that consistency is tough in your family? we did, it's really difficult to be consistent. And part of the reason for that is because children are different. Now, they don't understand this. <clears throat> they don't understand that maybe you treat one child a little differently because they respond to you differently and to your words. Am I right? Am I, are you tracking with me here on this? When my mother married my stepfather, I was 15 years of age. About a year later, after he had gotten involved a little bit in the discipline of our family, uh, wisely, she continued to, to primarily do that. He was not really yet in a position to be able to enforce heavy discipline. But he participated some. My brother next to me, two years younger, and I started talking about the way that he was disciplining us and the way that he was disciplining our next sibling down the line, who had the same name he did. You see, and our conclusion was, (laughs) this is straight out of how to be a teenager. Our conclusion was he treated him differently because they had the same name. And I remember how grieved he was when my brother and I told him that. It was just a perception on our part But consistency is so important. It's essential. Children see it so easily if we're inconsistent. Number eight, words must be matched with action. Paul says in verse 20, The kingdom of God is not a matter of what? Are you looking at it? (laughs) Not a matter of talk, but of power. Words have to be matched with action. If all we are is empty talk as parents, that creates tremendous cynicism in the hearts of our children. It's interesting to go into a store and to listen to a parent with little children. And you can see what's going on, not only in the store, but what probably happens in the home, too and how there are threats and there are warnings of wrath to come and you can tell nothing ever happens to that child. All it is is words. How long do you think it takes a child to recognize mom, dad, they're never gonna do what they say? You know what a nanosecond is? They get it really quick. So, folks, words must be matched with action. That's God's heart. That's how God does it. That's how God does it. Number nine, choices. Choices are a part of learning, and so are consequences. Now, as children grow older, you give them more choices. They're capable of making more decisions. But as they make more decisions, they make those choices, they also have to be told what consequences are and suffer them if they make the wrong choices that's how they learn to be responsible children who are never given choices once they get out of home out away from home (coughs) will make all the wrong choices count on it so part of discipline part of the the teaching of children has to be giving them choices that are appropriate for their age and helping them to see that with the choices come consequences. Folks, that's God's heart for parenting. It's not really complicated. In fact, we might even say it makes common sense. That shouldn't surprise us. Who's the author of common sense? Our God. Paul writes here as a father. The father of spiritual children. As he does that, he reflects to us the father heart of God. And so, becoming a parent after God's heart is attainable. You need to know that. It's not just for a few. Anybody can do this. It is attainable. But you need to also understand that it's critical. It's critical to your family's long-term happiness. To become a parent after God's own heart. And you can become a parent after God's heart. It's not hard. See, how do you do it? You love your children enough to discipline them. That's how. You see, as a parent, your, your, your God-given purpose is not to give them everything they desire. Your God-given purpose as a parent is not to get them involved in all the activities and sports that you didn't get to do when you were a kid. Sometimes I think we try to live our lives through our kids, and <coughs> we make their lives miserable. Your God given purpose is not to see that their life is fun and games. There's a place for those kind of things, but that's not life. Your God given purpose is not to make life easy for them and to help them avoid all the pitfalls and all the problems because it's through experiencing some of the hardships of life that we grow. If life is always easy, they grow up lazy. Well, your job as a parent, my job as a parent, indeed my job as a grandparent, is to help shape those under me into persons who are wise in Christ Jesus. Who are wise in Christ Jesus. I want you to remember something. Your children <coughs> didn't choose you. So I didn't choose them either. Well, you chose to have them. You chose to have them. And God blessed you with them. But they didn't choose you. But you're what they've got. And you're all they've got. So I plead with you in Christ Jesus. Rear them after God's heart. It's critical for them that you do so. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for how patient you've been with us. Some of us here today are grandparents, and we look back upon our experience as parents with memories of regret here and there, how grateful we are that children bounce back, that they're flexible, that your grace is there in our failures, too. Lord, I wish it were so that we could practice these principles and be guaranteed that our children are going to just turn out perfect. But that isn't the case. that's not even the case in your own family, is it? But Father, I pray that you will give us a deep desire to be parents after your heart. And the result of that will be that we will put into place in our homes, in our families. That we'll help our children with their children, help others that we can, to follow the wise principles of your word, and become parents after your heart, knowing that that's the very best thing we can do for their long-term happiness. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's sing. Please stand with us as we worship our wonderful, powerful beautiful and loving Father.